0: Last night I had the opportunity to take Hunter out to eat and I never know where people are from so I wanted to take him to get barbecue but northerners don't know what barbecue is <laughs> but he's not a northerner, right? And I uh, did his seminary work at uh, Southern Seminary and uh, we just had a good time fellowshipping last night and he's aware of trail that God has taken this church on and Mm -hmm. where he's placing us today and uh, as we've looked at this month of reminding us of the call of missions and it should be our joy Mm -hmm. and so uh, when Hunter said what do you want me to speak on I said I paint with large brush that's it do whatever you want and so let's pray for him as he comes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Father we sing songs like uh, speak O Lord. Uh, do we mean them is the question so father I pray that as hunter comes you would so hide him behind the cross that only Christ would be seen But that your word would be preeminent in our minds and our thoughts that we long to be changed we long to have the burden for the loss that you've called us to realize that there are millions of people under your judgment today Possibly some sitting here. Some among our own families. And the time is short. Your coming is soon. So Father, help us to occupy till you come. Remind us again of the call upon this church. Call upon all of us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We can't all go, but we can sure send those who can go. So Father, pray that you would use Hunter in a mighty way, for your glory, for your honor, in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Good morning. 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 Is this microphone working? Whoever's in charge? Okay. I was talking this morning to a truck driver in the hotel lobby. And he was dressed like a truck driver would dress, and I was dressed like this. And he said, now, brother, don't get me wrong. I'm a simple man. And I said, don't let this suit fool you. I'm a simple man, too. So it's a privilege for me to be here. Uh, The best that I can tell, I'm among friends, among people who were like-minded, among people who think about the world out there and churches and missions and everything else. So it's a delight to be here. The problem with me getting to choose what I want to say is I've got about 18 different things I would like to say. (laughs) So we're going to start at one place and see where it takes us. Uh, If you guys would start with me at the very last chapter of Matthew, you probably know it as the Great Commission. We had a discussion last week in the office when we were talking about missions because even though we... You know have a label of being a missionary society and I work with churches in Europe and other guys work in different continents around the world. I can assure you that we are by no means experts. We make mistakes, we try to correct them, we try to look at the scriptures and think, what exactly do we do when we say missions and what exactly can we do to help those churches that we work with um, so I want to make sure that when I say missions, that you all understand what I mean, what I'm saying. And I think you'll have the same idea. Uh, let's see where we're going to begin. At the end of Matthew chapter 28, uh, starting in verse 16, it says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. So here you see that it says after Christ has been crucified. He's ascended. He's victorious over death. He's now on earth. He's spent some time walking with the disciples. And he apparently told the disciples to meet him at a certain place, a final sort of word to them. And it says in verse 17 that when they saw him, that some doubted him. And that's amazing to me because all of us being simple people is that you would think these are the disciples. You know, these guys spent time with Christ when he was on earth. These people spent time with him, watching him and walking with him. And they had now seen him being crucified and raised again. And yet even with that, they still looked at Christ and saw him, that he was, that he was God incarnate. And still in their hearts they doubted. And so when I say that none of us are, are experts, none of us have, have figured this thing out, this is what I think about is the disciples didn't have it worked out either. And yet the disciples were mightily used of God to do many things that even impact us today. So you have these men, these disciples who were doubtful, some of them at least. And then in verse eighteen it says that Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth." And so Jesus saying that is a declaration that he was the Son of God incarnate who came, who by his death he accomplished what he was purposed to accomplish. That chapter in Isaiah that we read tells us that he brought justice to the earth that he brought light to the nations both Jew and Greek both Jew and Gentile all the ends of the earth had received this salvation that was from Christ it was now available to them so it wasn't just a a one time thing where 12 guys were saved and then Christ went on but he has power and authority and he shares that power and authority with the disciples and look in verse 19 he says something this is the command is to go he says, "Go out from where we're meeting here." He says, "And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all I observed that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." So there's a lot here that we could go through, and, I, and we're not going to spend most of our time here. But it's important to see a couple of things. So first, he says to go. That's the primary command. That if you've ever heard a sermon on this text, that's what they say is it means to go. So go out from where you are, go do something else for somebody, go with this message of Christ to all nations. You baptize them, you proclaim this Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You teach them the things that Christ taught you and the things that you find in his word. But then you have a promise at the end that he is with you always, even to the end of the age. And so I'll share a little more in the second service, but primarily the work that Heart Cry does is we work with churches internationally either planting churches or helping establish churches. Uh, If you think of three offices or three types of gifts that are used in church planting in places where there is no gospel preaching church, you would have evangelists. So men who would go in and who would share the gospel praying that somebody would be converted. And then you have pastors and teachers who would come in. And those pastors and teachers would work with the converts, these new believers, to help bring them to a maturity in the faith. So a pastor, a preacher would stand up like this and proclaim God's word every week to them. A teacher could pull them aside and teach them thoroughly through the scriptures. So if what I'm saying is true, then the great commission and missions is preachers and teachers and evangelists going into the world and making disciples and seeing churches planted. And maybe in your heart you're saying, that's wonderful, but I'm not a preacher or teacher or an evangelist, so where does that leave me? Well, I mentioned that the purpose is to plant churches and that churches all around the world are all part of one kingdom of christ and so churches in every place have a role even if you aren't the one going you have a commission from christ himself to be involved in this going and in this sending and in this laboring in every corner of this earth so i believe and i think you would agree with this Christ has given all of us gifts. Every single one of us, we have some unique spiritual gift. Whenever you're converted, Christ makes it evident, and you use that gift to serve the body of Christ. And so when you think about missions and what you do, you don't have to be a preacher and teacher and evangelist. I hope that God will raise up some of you to put that desire and calling on your heart to go. But you can take the gifts that you have of hospitality or of prayer or of evangelism or of love for the lost or of love for the brothers or of service or of so many different things, of raising children, of working in your workplace. You take those gifts that you have and you use them in every place, in every church to intercede for other brothers and sisters all around the world. Amen. So if that's missions, then we can go to Matthew chapter 9. It's a, it's a call that we have from Christ. He says that he'll be with us to the end of the age. And the thing that we have to remember is that we haven't yet reached the end of the age because Christ is still with us. That he told us before he ascended, at the beginning of the book of Acts, that we were a people who more or less lived between two days. So we here in 2023, we have the first day, which is Christ's ascension into heaven. And before he ascended, he promised to us and said, I'm coming back. And so we're still working and laboring, expecting for Christ to return at some point in the future. And that could be tomorrow or it could be a thousand years from now. I don't know when he's coming back. and I don't think any of you do, but he is coming back. And so we have this period of time, this unique window where his kingdom is advancing, where it is going forward. Where hopefully today there are people standing in pulpits like this, and they're proclaiming God's word. And people who are hearing that word are being saved. That you trust that God is still working, that the the harvest is still plentiful, that people are still coming to faith in Christ. That if you watch the news or you listen to people, sometimes you think that that God's uh, battle that he's fighting on earth, that it's a losing battle. That maybe you're discouraged and you think, oh man, it's it's not looking good for the church. But Christ gave us promises like that he would build his church. And so we know with full assurance that as long as Christ has not yet returned, his church is being built. So look here at the end of Matthew chapter 9 in verse 36. This is a sort of transition point in Jesus' ministry on earth up until now, Christ came and we had the long lineage that Matthew gave us of from where Christ came. We have his birth and his baptism recorded. We have it reported that he said and taught uh, the the understanding of the law that was in the Old Testament. He was doing miracles. He was healing people. People were gathering uh, around him because he was gaining attention. And then in verse 36, this is kind of a summary of what's happened so far. It says, seeing the people he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited, like a sheep without a shepherd, and so you you, you hear that, and I, I hope that you as a as a follower of Christ, you have something of that in your heart at times mm-hmm. whenever you look at the lost, maybe you 're eating dinner at a restaurant, and you can look around and you see these people, probably most of them, maybe all of them, they are like this this group that Christ saw their sheep without a shepherd. Mm-hmm. But this love that Christ had, from what I understand, from what commentators tell us, is that it wasn't just like a, a simple compassion for them, like, oh, you know, that, that poor person. But it was something deep within Christ, even a, a divine love that Christ exhibited, that all of us, without Christ's love, without the love that has been shown to us, we would never think outside of ourselves for anything. But that for Christ, he knew the love of the Father, and he had never had broken fellowship with his Father. So one of the most amazing things that Christ showed us when he was here on earth is his compassion for the lost. He says they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. So they were like torn in pieces and thrown all around. If, I am not a sheep farmer, but if you know about sheep farmers, you know that sheep are incredibly dull and really need a shepherd to watch over them. <laughs> that if one sheep goes astray, it's, it's almost hopeless. Uh-huh. That they'll do things that you just think, just walk through the gate. You know, you don't have to make it so difficult. But that's how sheep are, and that's what he used to describe the people in this place, is that they're sheep. And they can't help it, but that's all that they are. And these sheep need a shepherd to come alongside them, and so in this case we have Christ. And he is the chief shepherd. He is the one who teaches all shepherds after him how to be a shepherd. And he looks at these people with with compassion and with pity and with a desire to do something. So we see that he turns to the disciples, and he tells them in verse 37, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Well, my translation says the workers are few. The workers are few. And so he says, because of that, verse 38, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And so what I told you at the beginning about pastors and teachers and evangelists, if you do anything rest of your life, you could give yourself to praying for laborers to be raised up, for pastors, for teachers, for evangelists, for for men who are ready to lay aside everything else in their life, who are ready to, to give themselves with their families to go to some place that is not reached and take the gospel with them. That we have a prayer meeting every morning in our office, and this is one of the things that we pray, is that God would raise up more laborers because we look out, as you all do, as you look at your own mission work. And you realize that there are so many places that even though there are churches, there is no true gospel being preached. But there's, it's worse than that. There's places where there are no churches. There's no idea of Christianity. There's no idea of religion. But it's not just about, you know, men being saved and having a better life. There's no worship of the one true God. This Christ that we gathered here this morning to worship, there are places now on this earth where Christ is not worshiped as he should be worshiped. He is not praised as he should be praised. And that should turn our hearts to break and to, to want for Christ to be praised in every place. But according to Christ, it should also push us to, to ask the Lord to raise up laborers and, and faithful workers to go out into this harvest. One of the amazing things about this is that the way that this, this verse 37 is phrased is that you can look at it and think, okay, Christ he sees that there are people who will respond to the gospel, and so he's telling them to go out into the harvest, which is true. But it's something more than that. If you've ever heard of, of God's omniscience, where he knows all things, we, we know from the scriptures that God sees the end from the beginning, and so it's almost as if his Christ can look forward at the end of time, something like we would read in Revelation, and he sees that there is a day coming when people from every tribe and tongue and nation will gather, and Christ wants to see that day come. But he knows that the gospel has to be proclaimed to all these people and all these nations and all these, these lost sheep. And so he's looking ahead while he's standing here 2,000 years ago and he's crying out to God and he's teaching the disciples to do the same, to ask God to raise up people to go to those places where Christ is not named. But Christ doesn't just tell them, okay, sit back and just pray. You know, don't do anything yourself, just, just pray for God to, to do something. At a certain point, we can pray for God to do something, and then we stop and think, "Well, I don't—I go do something." So Christ, starting in chapter ten and verse one, says that He summons the twelve, and it says that He gave them authority to cast or to—he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So that would be a summary of Christ's ministry this far: is that that's what He did is that he could come and he could claim that he was God's son, that he was, he was the Messiah, that he was the expected one that Israel wanted. But he had to prove it in some way. He had to show that he really was the one true God. And so his way of doing that was to be able to heal diseases, and to heal sickness, and even to raise the dead. And so it says that he gave the disciples the same authority over those types of things to be able to do what Christ did. And then Matthew goes on in verses 2 and 3 and 4, and he lists out the disciples. And he lists them. I don't think it was for their benefit, but for ours, so we could see who were Christ's disciples at this point. It's interesting that he still lists Judas Iscariot, even though at this point Matthew would have known that Judas was a betrayer of Jesus. But we have it there for our record that the disciples, after they saw the resurrected Christ, doubted, and even one of the twelve was a betrayer of Jesus. And so as much as we can love and trust men, even the greatest of men, all men are men at best. And we go on in in verse 5, in verses 5 through 15, Jesus gives them a mission, an immediate mission just for the disciples to do something on his behalf with this new authority. So starting in verse 5, it says, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles or enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the disciples have this authority to cast out unclean spirits and to heal sicknesses. He tells them where to go, which is first to the house of Israel. And then he also tells them in verse 7 and 8 what message to go with. He says, As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick and raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers. Cast out demons freely you received and freely you give. And so at this point in time, Christ is still on the earth. He has not yet been resurrected. He has not yet died. He has not yet uh, ascended into heaven. So there was no gospel message in the way that you or I would would proclaim the gospel. But here you do have something of these disciples have followed Jesus around for some time. They've seen the work that he's done. So they're going out and they're going to Israel and they are announcing, this is the message that we have. And so what was that message? In verse 7 it says, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what does that mean? If you think about being Israel in this first century AD, in this time whenever there was a period of silence between the Old and New Testament, these Jewish people, the ones who who were faithful to the Old Testament, to, to the Torah, to the prophets, they knew the history of what God had done with Israel. They were waiting for a person to come with certain expectations from certain lineages from people who would be his forefathers. They were waiting for somebody to come who would be the guy that they had been waiting for. To be the the Messiah, the one that would save them. To be the better Abraham, the better David, the better all these men who had failed. But to be somebody who came and who brought in an earthly kingdom with him. They were expecting somebody who would come and who would set up like this is the kingdom of Israel and this is God's people and this is all that it entails and finally it's done and it's over. And so whenever Christ died, the disciples were surprised. They thought, Christ, why are you going to die? I thought you were the Messiah. So what Christ is saying is that Christ recognizes he is the one who has come. He is the long expected one through whom God created the world. And he's telling the disciples to go and to proclaim to all of Israel, this is the message that you have on your lips to tell the people, that the kingdom is here and is at hand. He gives them, in verse 8, authority to, to, to work. He tells them to perform miracles. Because we're moving from Christ's ministry of healing people now to the disciples' ministry, we can take a step further and think, is this our ministry of healing the sick and raising the dead and cleansing lepers? I don't know about you, but I haven't done any of those things. I haven't healed any sick. I haven't uh, fixed any lepers. I haven't cast out any demons. And so you have to stop and think, why is that not our ministry? And I think it's because this was a specific time in the life of the early, early church, before Christ was ascended, that he gave them a level of authority to prove his sonship on earth. To prove that he was the son of man. Yes. To prove that he was the Messiah and the sent one. And so these disciples can only do this not because they're spectacular, but because Christ has given them authority. It says at the end of verse 8, freely ye received and freely give. And so it's not as though these Christ went out and he chose specific and particular men because of their pedigree. He didn't go and choose the best of all the Jewish leaders, of the best of the Sanhedrin or the, the, the Pharisees or Sadducees. Christ went and he chose fishermen. He chose simple men. He he chose men who were uneducated, who weren't taught, who weren't weren't high in society. And so it wasn't as though these guys had inherent worth in them that they were able to go out and perform miracles. But what they had is what all of us have. They had weakness. They had need for God. They had need for Christ. They had the knowledge that they had no ability in themselves to do anything unless Christ helped them. And so he says, I've given you all this authority that so many people would want to use for their gain. But I've given it to you for free. And so he said, you give it to others for free. So in verse nine, that's, that's what he explains is don't acquire gold or silver or copper for your belts. He says, don't go out and say, look, I can do these miracles. Now pay me and I'll do a miracle for you. You could see where it would be very, very easy before modern medicine to go out and to have this ability to, to heal people and to fix people's problems. I would imagine there were long lines of, of people waiting at the disciples' feet saying, please, do something for me. Please heal me. Please work in me. And it would be so tempting just to say one time, okay, give me a coin and I'll do it for you. But they didn't do that because Christ commanded them not to. It says, don't take a lot of things for yourself. Don't, don't take a, uh, a caravan with you to parade through towns and pronounce, okay, I'm here to save you. But he instruct, instructs them to go, in verse 9 and 10, to go in a very simple way, to go without very much, to basically just take the clothes that you have and to start from this moment going. There's a pastor friend that I have who's, well, he's 72 years old. He was a pastor for 20 years in Louisiana. And then he was a pastor, a church planter for 20 years in China. And then about three years ago, he was kicked out of China because his closest disciple turned him into the government. Mm -hmm. So now he's somewhere in Asia in some hidden location, continuing to work and do as he's able to. And whenever he travels, he says that he takes this verse to heart because he goes and he wears one set of clothes. And if you've been to Asia, you know that Asians don't dress like this. They would just wear a shirt and simple pants and... Mm -hmm. And he carries with him a second set of clothes. So if it's day one, he's washing the second set of clothes. If it's day two, he's wearing the second set of clothes, washing the first set of clothes. So maybe Christ meant that, I don't know. But you see, the disciples went out. They had these wonderful, spectacular abilities that none of us have, that Christ has not given to us, that nobody in this present day would have been able to do. And you see that they went out in a way that we wouldn't expect them to. They went out very simply with very little means hoping that they would be provided for along the way. And so jumping forward again from the disciples ministry to our ministry I think we can make an application here that would be relevant. There's a temptation that I've seen in church planters that I know and that I work with and people who want to go into foreign countries and do things is that they think well if I'm going to go and I'm going to start some um, church I need to start with a team of a dozen people I need to have all these books and things translated. I need to have a church building so that I can have a place to meet. I need to have everything ready so that if I build this big, spectacular ministry, people will be uh, intrigued and they will come in. And I've seen people do that. And I've seen people fail. And so I think if you read the way that the disciples went out, you can think, that's not the way to do it. (laughs) I think there is an alternative that Christ suggests here whenever he explains the way that you go out is... At the end of verse 10, he says, For the worker is worthy of his support. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about these these men working, they weren't being paid at first by the people who they were ministering to. Christ didn't have any money, so he didn't give them any money. So who were they working for? I think it's clear they were working for the Lord, for their Father in heaven. They were being sent out with the Father's authority to do certain things, to bring the kingdom that was at hand onto the earth in some physical way, and they went out as laborers for the Father in heaven. And so what this this verse means for us is that the disciples were laboring for the Father, and the Father promised to provide for them. And so insofar as our work is for the Father who is in heaven, he will provide what we need as his workers. There's a principle here for for. Pastors, for preachers, for teachers, for evangelists, for people who, who earn their living by the gospel, as the, the New Testament says. And that I think it's right, biblically, for if a man spends his life living out of his calling to preach the gospel, to pastor, to work in that way, that the church members who listen to him every week are supported by the pastor. There's a story that I heard one time of a man and he was invited into a church. And in this church, they uh, were looking for a new pastor. So they had him come as sort of the intermediate pastor. And they were really struggling trying to find somebody who was willing to come. Uh, they had a job outlined of all the tasks that the, the pastor should do. And so one day this intermediate pastor got up and he said, Okay. And he, he pulled up a big whiteboard on stage. And he said, One by one, I want you to tell me all the tasks that you want your new pastor to do. I said, Okay. And so he would write it out, you know, like, Uh, open the building up for all the services or make the coffee or you know prepare some sermons I mean you can imagine all the things that take place in a church especially in a small church the pastor is usually the guy who does all the stuff and then the intermediate guy got to the end and he said okay let me ask you a question this guy is responsible for teaching and catechizing and instructing your children how much time do you want him to spend uh, studying his bible every week and they were kind of like oh we hadn't thought about that And so they they threw out some number. Okay, 20 hours a week. So he wrote 20 hours. Okay, this guy is responsible. He'll give an account to God one day for your souls. How much time do you want him praying for each one of your family members specifically? They're like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. 20 hours. And so they added up this long list of all these tasks for this pastor. And they were asking the man to work like 420 hours a week or something. But on top of that, the wage they were offering to him was so little, there was no way that, that he could do it. And so the point is here in this passage is that as the disciples went out, there would be men of peace or people of peace who would receive them in every city. They would provide a place for them to stay. They would provide food and sustenance for them. And then they would be sent out along their way to go forward. So verse 12, we have, uh, we've, we've had the message that they have. We have the way that they go out. Starting in verse 12, we have the expectation they have for their ministry. So Christ is warning them here before they go out. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be better for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. And so if you're familiar with the first nine chapters of Matthew, this passage will be a surprise to you. Because so far, Christ has not faced any real sense of hostility. There have not been people yet ready to stone him or kill him for what he is or or what he is saying. But here you have Christ telling the disciples, you're going to go out representing me and with my message, and people will not receive it. They will want to to kick you out of town. So he, he begins saying, go in and you expect that something will receive you and so you give it your, your blessing of peace. But he warns them and says, if they don't receive you, he says, go out of that city and leave and dust off your feet. I basically say the work here is done. And so they're, they're going to Israel. And it's the point that some in Israel were glad to see the Messiah and God even gave them eyes of faith to see that this was the one who would come, who they had been waiting for, who was expected but there were some, and the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were the ones especially, who maybe they even knew that Christ really was the one that God had sent. And yet they still hated him. And so the disciples are instructed to dust off their feet and to go on to the next place. But then Christ tells the future of those people who will not heed the message. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment and for that city and if you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah you know that that is not a kind thing to say about a place and so you can see the, the disciples going out and but what was in their minds I, I have no idea but you can think about that for our own day that whenever we have this, this desire and intention we hope that God will work I know so many times there's, there's church planters or pastors or, or missionaries that I'll know there's friends that I have who said I want to go to the mission field And they'll spend years preparing, and they'll get ready, and they're excited, and they're hopeful, and they're zealous. They they finally go. They go to the country, and they think with some degree of arrogance, "I'm going to go out in the streets, and people are going to praise me because I'm here. They're going to bow down to Christ, and the whole city will be saved." And in every single case, Christ crushes their dreams and says, "That's not going to happen." (laughs) There are times whenever a man goes to plant a church and people come. Like there's a church that I know in the country of Spain. I went with them last month for their two-year celebration of church planting. They had 110 people in the room and it was capped at that because they didn't have any more seats to fill. So God does bless the preaching of the word, but God tells us to the disciples first and then now to us, whenever we go out and do things for his name, not everyone is going to be happy with us. Amen. But that's also a, a word for us here. I think that there's a, there's a problem in the U.S. And I'm speaking about my own life first and the churches that I know and grew up in, but also probably it applies to you, is that, that man that I mentioned from Asia, who's 72, who has two sets of clothes, he told me the last time that I talked to him, he said, Hunter, I want you to know something. I said, okay. He said... I've been all over, I've been in hard places, I've been persecuted for Christ, I've been all these things, but he said, you know what, he said, the hardest place to be a Christian is in the United States of America. Yes. And I said, what do you mean? I was thinking in terms of persecution, I said, there's no persecution here. And he said, no, that's, that's the problem, is there isn't persecution here. He said, whenever I meet with these Chinese pastors or these different Asians that I know and that I work with, and every day they're worried about, is the government going to come in and going to fight me in some way? Am I going to be arrested? Are the people that are my neighbors going to turn me in or something? He said, those people are fully aware that they have a need for Christ to preserve their ministry or else everything will end. He said, they live every single day acknowledging that fact, aware of what's at stake, aware of their task, aware of their mission. He said, the problem in America is you have the opposite, where we can be like the Army Reserve, we can come in here on a Sunday and we can enjoy the time together, we can have fellowship, we can hear a sermon, we can be convicted, and then we can go to our houses and take a nap and watch some football and never ever think about the things we heard again today. Mm -hmm. And then you wake up on Monday and you have no conscious thought of what you heard the day before. You You have the kids, you have your family, you have your job, you have all the troubles that you have there. And so you spend the next five days of your work week worried about things of this world and worried about the job that you have and worried about your family and all the problems that are within your own household. And then you have Saturday where maybe you do something as a family or you have some chores to do and then you're back again to Sunday. It's like the Army Reserve where they go on the weekends and they do the Army stuff and they train and practice but they have a month at a time with no physical combat. The problem with Christianity in the U.S., at least as it is now, is that it's easy for us to live a life that is distracted and a life that is self-centered and a life that is self-focused. The purpose and what I wanted to do in looking at these verses is that we have to remember this high call that Christ has for his disciples. Amen. Our life as Christians is one of, of self-service and self-sacrifice yes. and one where we have to remember what's at stake. We have to remember that we have brothers and sisters who are in every place who are facing real persecution. that, are, that are, they're, they're, Their lives are on the line. And even though we don't have that kind of, of attack here for being a Christ follower, those are our brothers and those are our sisters. Those are our people who, who we can look at and we can do something for. A question that we ask as a group, as a mission, is we always ask ourselves, what do we have in our hand that our brothers and sisters do not have? And so if we're strong, we try to help the weak. If we're intelligent, if we've studied, it's to try to help those with no education. If we have finances to help those who have less than us. Because one day we will be in that end time standing before our risen and resurrected Lord in heaven worshiping with them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we have to hear at times this, this call That we live between two days. That this battle that we have on earth is not one of flesh and blood. Our biggest worry is not who the next elected official will be. Our biggest worry is not about the the physical wars going on. But there is a war that we have that has been raging for for all of eternity, for all of time. As as long as humans have been here, there has been a serpent since Genesis chapter 3 who desires to crush the work of Christ. There is, a, there is an enemy that is real. There is a religion that we have that is supernatural. There are places in this world that have not been reached because Satan has a strong hold over yes. them. He, he has his hand gripped firmly on the hearts of people who love their sin and who love and want to worship him. And the only way that those things will come down is if Christ grants for them to come down. At the beginning, he, he, he mentions the need for, for laborers to go out into the harvest. I want to mention two other places for you. Uh, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. So, we're talking about our duty of missions, our task in missions, our responsibility that we have as, as Christians, as Christ followers. Because the Great Commission is worded in such a way that the, the command is to go, my first thought is always, okay, what can I go and do? How can I travel? How can I spend myself? How can I go out and you know, do something physical and in person? But I think one of the most underestimated, underappreciated ways in which every single one of us can have a participation in this Great Commission is to spend our lives in prayer. Amen. And there are prayers that we should pray. That you pray it once and then you go on and you you can forget about it, honestly. But there are certain things that Christ has commanded us to pray in his word. And because He's told us to pray it, he's, he's promising to answer it. So one of those was to pray for laborers, that he will send out laborers. But here in 1 Timothy 2, we have another. So this is Paul writing to Timothy who's instructing the church in Ephesus. And he's telling the church how they should pray. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, be made on behalf of all men. And then in verse 2, For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So what does that mean for us as we think about missions and the Great Commission? It means that we should pray for kings and for those who are in authority. That we should pray that God is the one, according to the book of Romans, who sets authorities and and rulers in place. They are God's avenger, hopefully, to carry out justice and righteousness here on the earth. But there are plenty of places where that does not happen. And in places where that does not happen, the church is the one that suffers. Mm -hmm. There's there's one man who who I heard praying one time, and he's a good man, but he was praying for God to bring persecution because it would purify the church. Mm -hmm. And a brother of mine spoke up and said do not pray for persecution because he said I'm thinking about the places where there is persecution. There's there's some who say that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Mm. So if people are persecuted and blood is spilled then the church will always grow. And in some cases by God's grace that's been true. But there are cases where you think about North Korea. There are people being persecuted beyond limits that we can imagine. And that church is not growing. Yeah. And according to this passage right here, we don't want persecution. We don't want the governments to rise up against us. We don't want the cities to take us all out in the streets. We want to be able... Why does he He, he say to pray for authorities? He says that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We want to have quiet lives as Christians. Not lives that are retracted, that are only thinking about ourselves and what we should do for our lives, but lives that are hidden from the side of those who would want to do us harm. Yes. We want to have lives that are hidden away from, from people who would be opposed to Christianity. We, we want to have freedom to be able to work and to labor as God commands us to. We want to be able to go about the work of the ministry hidden under the radar, not drawing attention to ourselves. Yes. There's a brother that I have in in a country in Eastern Europe and they say that this is the last dictatorship in Europe. And I was there uh, two years ago with him and we spent two weeks. We traveled around from village to village and there were churches that he knew, good Baptist churches with five or 10 or 15 believers. So every day we would wake up, we would go to the church, we would meet with the pastor, we would have lunch and we would have a church meeting to try to encourage the people. And about day 10 or 11, we were sitting around the table and we were laughing and having a good time and I mean it was like great fellowship with people who you'd never met before and you almost forgot about where you were and what country you were in and then one of the guys got a phone call on his phone, it was ringing and the whole room went quiet because the, the, the number was unknown and so he answered it, hello and whoever it was and whatever it was and whatever they said was we're, we know exactly what you're doing. You need to be careful. We are watching you. And then they hung up. And this is a story that I don't tell if my wife's in the room because she doesn't know this story. But the, the point of the story is to show you that there are people who live under constant fear that somebody will come barging into their houses and barging into their churches. And if you've ever lived in a time of your life where you have that sense of constant anxiety and fear and worry in your life, you know that you can't get anything else done. Whenever you're being attacked from the outside... All you can think about is, what if all this gets stopped? And you can't think about the work that you have to do. And so when you think about this text and you pray for for other believers, for other churches, for other Christians, think about those people who live in places like this and ask God to preserve them. Not just to keep what's there, but for God to work and to add to their number, to convert people who are in high places or to make a fool of them and to have Christ's name praised instead of the, the, the government leaders. So we have this text that you can take. We also have in Colossians chapter 4 another text that you can take. Colossians chapter 4 starting in verse 2. He says very plainly, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I also have been imprisoned, that I may speak it in a clear way as I ought to speak. So you have here very clearly... The Apostle Paul, who would spend his time traveling from church to church asking for prayer. And he commands the church in the book of Colossians to be devoted to prayer, being alert, so not being like the disciples falling asleep, with an attitude of thanksgiving to God. But at the same time, not just thanking God for things, but he says, pray for him, so for the apostles, and by extension, pray for the ministers of the word, pray for the churches, that a door would be opened up for the word. So, the Apostle Paul's ministry was one of going to different churches and seeing where God was working and trying to give himself to these different kinds of works. We, as a mission, we don't do planning. We don't have big goals and visions and dreams. We uh, don't look ahead and think, all right, you know, at this time we're going to spend this much money and have this budget and do these things because we believe that we have this task that the lord has given us and if he's given us the task he'll lead us in how to do it and so there are countries right now that we're, we're looking at there's an area of the world called the 1040 window which is if you look at it it's northern africa the middle east and then parts of asia where it just so happens that this little rectangle of earth has the most lost people the most darkness the most lack of gospel preaching in it and so we're looking at these 1040 window countries And just so we have an aim, we've said, okay, we want to have two workers in every country of the 1040 window by the time that it's 10 years from now. And what we could do is we could hire some strategists, hire some missions experts, hire some people who really know the things that are going on there. And we have talked to friends that we have who are in some of those countries. I, I think right now we're working in a fourth of the countries. But what we do more than that is we pray for open doors to go into those places we pray that God would lead us. If this is a, a goal that he's given for us that we're convinced of, we pray that he would lead us to go into these places that bring a person, bring a preacher, bring a church plant, bring a conference, bring some contact so that we can have work in these places. And so whenever I go to churches and they ask me, how should we you know, do things at a church? We want to go to do some kind of mission work out in the world. What do we do? And I always just tell them, well Paul says pray for open doors. So I'll tell you guys, pray for open doors. Yes. I, I know that you're doing work in certain places and from what it sounds like you're doing wonderful things. Maybe your prayer for open doors is God to continue to giving increase and and more fruit in those areas that you're already working. Yes. <clears throat> A prayer that I've prayed as we support some Russian speaking brothers in some different countries in that part of the world. And ever since the war with Ukraine started, getting funds there has been almost impossible. And so I've prayed this text often asking, Lord, please keep that door open. Because if it shut off, we're talking about the lives of 22 Russian speakers who will have no access to funds. Mm-hmm. And so if there's any obstacle, any problem, any, anything that you face that is an impossibility for you, you ask the Lord to open the door and he will do it as he pleases. Yes. So Paul, this hopefully will confirm what I just said. Paul is asking for an open door in the middle of verse 3 so that he may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which he has been imprisoned, that he may speak it in a clear way. The problem with having an open door is, is knowing how to go through it. And so what Paul's speaking about is pray for an open door that I can have a chance to go into some new country and some new place and have some new content. But the problem is is when he gets there, he wants to also have the boldness of what to say and how he should say it. Yes. And so when you pray for open doors, you can pray in that same way. The other thing with, with American Christianity, and I'm not picking on Americans because I'm an American. I love this country, but I'm using it as a general term for all of us, is that it's easy to run in Christian circles and it's easy to... to have Christian activity, to have fellowship, to think, well, my grandmother was a Christian, my mother was a Christian, so I'm a Christian. It's easy to look at others and and to cheer on their sacrifice for the gospel. It's easy to even give your own money for the work of the gospel and think, God's going to give me an extra blessing in heaven. Mm -hmm. And there is a reward for us if we are faithful to the end. There is a reward that's promised that in some way those who gave the most for God will be honored and will be celebrated along with everyone else who was brought into salvation but we have to be so careful that you wouldn't want this entire church full of people to stand one day in glory celebrating and then to look around and think but where's this person Mm -hmm. and so when you hear the the words of christ to his disciples to go out and you see the work that this church does to to go out and to work and to labor you have to ask yourself, when I'm in the middle of this, this wonderful place, when I'm in the middle of all this work and I hear about what's going on, when I'm in this, this state, in this country, and I have my job and the things of this world, you have to be very careful that you are not one who is in the church of God but not a part of it. This, this call that we have to missions is as high as it could possibly be. The stakes could not be any higher. But the thing that motivates that high call for missions, it's not just our own interests or our own passions. It's, it's not as though some were given more to it than others. It's not only for preachers and for missionaries, but it's for all of us to heed. Amen. Because the call of missions is a call not just for people to be saved, not just for pastors to learn more about how to run their ministries, but it's a call for Christ's name to be worshipped in every place. Yes. And if you know what it is to... To to call upon the name of the Christ of Christ for the first time. If you know what it is to have that love for Christ in your heart, then you will understand this high call. That that chapter that we read in Isaiah 59, we'll look at it more in the second service. But that's exactly what Christ has done for us. That yes. that all the way from Genesis chapter three, every single man who the Old Testament names who came after Christ was one, who was supposed to be the Savior. You had Abraham and you had Noah and you had Moses and you had David. And then the further down the line that you go, it's it's more and more sin and wickedness and evil to the point that Israel was supposed to be God's chosen people. There's supposed to be a, a prophet and a priest and a king who would stand up and who would say, I'm the one who's come to save you. But the prophets tell us that those men and us as men without Christ, that we drink down sin like it's water that we love it. And that we hate the God that created us. And that we hate the, the worship of anything other than ourselves. But this is what Christ has done, is that God could have looked at this rotten mass of humanity, of lovers of self and worshippers of other gods, and he could have said, okay, I'm done with you. But the scriptures tell us that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Yes. He didn't die for the religious leaders to be saved. He came for the lost sheep. Yes. For those who were torn and who were broken and who were hurting. And maybe you're saying in your heart, I am torn and I am hurting and I am broken. But you say, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. But I can tell you because of Christ's compassion, he doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care about your past. All He cares about is that today would be the day of your salvation. That you would call up on the name of the Lord. And that you would bend your knee to Him. That your mouth would worship Him. That you would join with all of creation in praising His glorious name. We could take all of the best theologians from all around the world. We could take all of the best speakers and orators from all around the world. We could take all the best evangelists and lock them all in a room and say, write something beautiful about Christ. You have a thousand years and even in that 1,000 years, they would not be able to, 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 to put a drop in the ocean that is Christ's beauty. Amen. If you know Him, then you can rejoice in your heart that He is worthy of our worship and our yes. praise. You know that He is worth all of our efforts, all of our sacrifice, any cost, any finance, mm-hmm. anything that you have that you can give to others. If it's a, a sacrifice for Christ, it's worth it. Yes. He doesn't stand there and call us to sacrifice without Him sacrificing Himself. Mm-hmm but He Himself has given everything that He had to the point of death on a cross so that we now as brothers and sisters can give what He has given to freely give it back to Him. So if you don't know Christ, hear this message and call upon His name. And if you do know Christ, then let's run our race together more quickly by His grace to see this this world reached for Him. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the gift that he has given to us, Lord. There's none of us deserving, none of us, Lord, who could stand on our own. We have no righteous work to offer, but that work that he has done, that work that he has done for us. So, Father, we would ask that you would, Lord, help us. Lord, put it on our hearts to to be better servants, to be better ministers, to be better um, lovers of your son. Lord, I, I pray that you would. Lord. Open up doors for each of us, Lord, with the gifts that you have given to us. God, we we pray for the lost. We pray for the persecuted. We pray for the suffering, God. Please bring that good news at the right time, that they might see your son, Lord, and and worship him as he is, is, is worthy. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Lord, we ask all of this in Christ. Amen.